0: after Prince Siddhartha, the Bodhisattva, saw the four heavenly messengers of an elderly person, a sick person, and a corpse, and felt some urgency upon understanding that these conditions happen to all beings, felt some urgency to find a way to be free of these as well as all suffering. He also saw a mendicant, someone who seemed to be living in the world with these conditions but not suffering. And that gave him an idea of the direction to look. So he left the palace, left his father's domain, so to speak, and took up the homeless life and sought out the spiritual teachers of his day. And in a relatively short time, he was able to hear those teachings, practice those teachings, and realize what their leaders or teachers knew. And he was invited by them to um, assume the role or the mantle of the leader of that group. But he understood that that was not the end of suffering. It was not freedom from suffering. In fact, the two teachers, the main teachers that he had practiced with, were both teachers who had perfected uh, absorption in the formless jhanas, which at that time was considered to be liberation. But he understood that that really wasn't. So he went on his own to find a way other than what was being taught and available by teachers. And it took him some number of years doing very austere ascetic practices but as I mentioned the other night when he had this vision or a memory of the peacefulness of his mind sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree where he was interested but relaxed and his mind spontaneously uh, reached an exalted state of jhana that he thought well maybe maybe there's something to this relaxed interest as a way of reaching understanding of the inner suffering. And he followed that his his intuition and indeed did come to understand the way things are in a very profound new way for that time. And when he first looked around the world to decide what to do after his awakening, uh, he considered actually kind of <coughs> resorting to the forest somewhere in the Himalayas and just living out his life with some ease. But he was prevailed upon by some, some heavenly beings, evidently, who uh, implored him to <coughs> share his teachings with others who have but little dust in their eyes, meaning they might be ready to awaken if they heard the teachings. So then he decided to share his realization with others. And the first group of uh, people that he chose to share his teachings with were the five ascetics that he had been practicing with before he went on his own way. But they were very skeptical that having taken this luxurious route of eating food and whatnot that he was realized. But he convinced them with his talk. And the first talk he gave them was a talk that's called Setting the Wheel of Dharma in Motion. But it's essentially a talk about the four truths. I call them the adult facts of life from the Buddhist perspective. But it's the four truths that uh, he was able to articulate based upon his own experience and <clears throat> realization and understanding. It's not that the Buddha invented the Four Noble Truth as a good, a nice theory or a good religion or uh, some sort of philosophy, but rather through his observation of his own experience, he was able to understand them and arrive at liberation and that's what he chose to teach. So he said that, you know, he was asked, of course, many questions uh, about reality and realms and practices, but he often chose not to answer uh, speculative or philosophical questions at all, saying it would be unbeneficial. It doesn't belong to the fundamentals of the holy life. It doesn't lead to disenchantment or dispassion or to cessation or to peace or to the direct knowledge of enlightenment nor to nibbana. So the answers, the speculation about being and non-being realms, etc., that speculation and questioning doesn't lead to the end of suffering. He then went on to say that I teach dukkha, and the end of Dukkha. I teach Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. That's all he would teach. These are the two of the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha, the cause of Dukkha, the end of Dukkha, and the path to the end of Dukkha. And as the teachings of the Buddha have migrated or been carried from India to Tibet, China, Southeast Asia, Japan, Sri Lanka, as the teachings of the Buddha had been carried by monks along the merchant trails. Uh, All of those places heard the teachings and over the course of some number of years, the teachings of the Buddha would kind of integrate with the prevailing teachings at the time. The other religions or uh, animistic religions or shamanistic religions or ways of being. And we now have very distinctive uh, practices in Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Chinese Chan Buddhism, and Theravada, Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka uh, Buddhism. But the interesting thing is the word for meditation, Chan, Zen, Tantra, and Jhana, of those four different areas, all means the same thing. And even though the uh, rituals, uh, the practices, the appearances of uh, monastics or those who practice in these traditions, very different, very different looking, appearing, sounding, you know, they all rest upon, as a foundation, the four noble truths. None of them have denied or omit the Four Noble Truths. So we could say that the Four Noble Truths are the essential dharma of the Buddhas. And what we see as the kind of uh, contemporary practices of Buddhist teachings have been adapted to different cultures, and so it looks very different. But underneath it all is this uh, resting on the foundation of the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So it's important that we, in our journey of awakening, journey to awaken, that we hear the Four Noble Truths, not to accept them as dogma or even as a belief system or philosophy, but just as a sign, something pointing to something we might want to investigate or we might discover on our own journey of awakening. I think it's important to put the Four Noble Truths in the category of the wisdom of the five faculties that we've been talking about this week, because as we practice, uh, the Four Noble Truths offer a really useful guide as to how to understand practice, the purpose of practice, what you see in practice, the direction of practice, And so the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths is an essential piece of the uh, wisdom factor of the five faculties. As I said, the Buddha didn't invent the Four Noble Truths, but a Buddha is one who, through his own efforts uh, and observation, comes to understand the Four Noble Truths and articulates them in a way that others can understand and that's the uniqueness of the Buddha, because we don't we don't have to do it on our own. We have te- Buddha's teachings to rely on, or at least to be informed about, if not guided by. And so we don't have to do the original work that the Buddha did. Nevertheless, the, liberate, the degree of liberation of the Buddha is available to us if we practice and realize what he did. We don't have to become a Buddha. We just have to become free. Just. So, Four Noble Truths. You probably have all heard of the Four Noble Truths, if not know them yourself. But I'd like to speak about them in the context of uh, what we're doing here. How here we see all Four Noble Truths, clearly, every day, to, to a degree. And it's important to ground these teachings, which can be very theoretical, uh, if you don't practice. It might be a good philosophy if you don't practice. But if you practice, it's like a, a, a clear roadmap of what you're, of the journey you're taking. So, first noble truth is uh, dukkha satya. Satya means the truth, and so the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. When I first started practicing, as I said, it was during the first three-month retreat, in 1975, and I think I heard uh, the first noble truth articulated as "life is suffering," which didn't make any sense to me. I was 25, and I was young, and I had my whole life, except the first 25 years, ahead of me, and you know I was full of it, and um, I just thought suffering. I'm not suffering. I mean, I. I like I, said, I went to this two week retreat, I sat up back my body was in excruciating pain, I'd never sat on the floor like that never meditated before my mind was a royal mess my, and I was detoxing from life And but I wasn't suffering <laughs> I couldn't open to suffering in my mind, if I was suffering I was a failure and I couldn't couldn't open to it. I couldn't cop to that. Ten years later in Burma when I was practicing Lupand Dita, all of his talks were translated and one of his translators used the phrase for dukkha of the oppressive nature of phenomena. That's pretty safe. <laughs> I could get it. I could begin I could really begin to open to or the impressive nature of phenomena, whether it's hunger or heat or humidity or bugs or mosquitoes or whatever. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. And gradually over time, of course, picked up more of the understanding of dukkha. But what that experience showed me is how difficult it is, actually, to hear the fullness of what the Buddha is pointing to when he talks about the the truth of dukkha. Partly because we personalize it. When he talks about pain or suffering, we think it's my pain, and my suffering, and somewhere in the back of my mind, you know, our sense of you know, you know, vulnerability and inadequacy and not quite measuring up assumes that somehow, if I just get it together, then I won't be suffering. Mm-hmm. But the Buddha is pointing to the truth of dukkha, which is universal. Everyone. All beings experience dukkha. Live with this condition of dukkha. So, what does dukkha mean? Well, the first, most obvious meaning of dukkha, and it's called dukkha dukkha because it's so obvious, is the uh, ordinary physical and mental pain that we all experience. You know, when you're when you're growing up, it's painful. When you're Slam your finger in the door, it's painful. When you have a toothache, it's painful. If you're hungry, it's painful. If you can't get any sleep, it's painful. You know, and and when you get sick, it's painful. You know, it's it's obvious physical pain, which we all experience. There's obvious mental pain that we all experience, like feeling loss and grief and loneliness and vulnerability, and then all the emotional reactions of fear, depression, anxiety, alienation, betrayal, prejudice. And we all experience all of those very obvious uh, suffering mental states. Again, each one of us personalizes it to our own story, our own narrative. And somehow we, we imagine That we're the only ones. I mean, we know that people do, but somehow it feels personal rather than universal to us. So that's the first meaning of dukkha, the first experience that dukkha is pointing to, the word dukkha points to. The second is, the second experience has to do with the fact that things change. And because things change, unavoidably, unexpectedly, inevitably, and we don't control everything, we are forever vulnerable and insecure. Right now, right now, we all might be enjoying pleasant experiences. You know, we have enough health to be here, we have enough wealth to be here, we have enough discretionary time, we have the education to understand this, we can practice. Uh, even The weather's even good, and we're not under threat of war on our soil. Uh, and so, you know, uh, life is pretty good. And yet, somewhere close to the periphery of our vision, there's this understanding, or there's this fear, that it could all change at any moment. Any one of us could go to the doctor, you know, next week, for our regular checkout and get a diagnosis that changes our life. Any one of us. None of us are immune. Or, you know, whatever uh, job you have, whatever financial resources you have, whatever uh, valuable possessions you have, whether it's home, car, whatever, can be destroyed, can be stolen, can be burned, can be just taken away from And we know how it can be so. Devastating. You know, even a little thing, just one little thing in our life can be really tumultuous and torturous to have to deal with. And as I mentioned earlier, imagine living on the coast of Japan six or seven years ago when the earthquake set off a tsunami that wiped out their, well, their whole community and the possibility of living there for a few hundred years and everything with it. I mean, what, what could anyone do to inoculate themselves from that level of insecurity and suffering? cannot. We can't either. We're living just like they did, like they were. Whatever, whatever resources and community and uh, security nets we have, you know, constructed for ourselves in our own life, uh, vulnerable to change. And we know that. We live with the knowledge that all that can change instantly. And so, just on the periphery of our vision is this ominous, you know, fear inducing, unknown change. So, if we're relying on things, stuff, places, people, jobs, roles, relationships, for our sense of security, real heart security, it's fragile. And so, again, we live with this just out of sight. You know, Not very far out of sight, but just barely out of sight. And again, we often miss the significance of what the Buddha is pointing to, because, you know, we, we might feel, well, I haven't quite got my act together, you know. I do need a little bit more in my retirement account, and it would be good if I got some of my cholesterol levels down, my heart rate down, my blood pressure would go down. Whatever you know, it'd be good if, if I got my act together. We personalize it. We personalize this unknown, you know, threat to our security and happiness. Missing the teachings of the Buddha, which says everyone experiences this whether you're wealthy or not, whether you live in the East, or you live in the West, whether you're monks and nuns or lay householders like ourselves, whether you're educated or illiterate, whether you have a ton of money or no money, uh, education or no education. Men, women, others, it's like all beings live with this vulnerability and insecurity. And so when we personalize it to ourselves and don't kind of see the universality of it, somehow we diminish. we, we, we kinda of feel like, oh, oh poor me. And in fact, everyone. And you can't you can't you can't name a person who doesn't have this threat of insecurity. So We could say that dukkha dukkha is hidden in pleasant experience. Because when pleasant experiences change, we're left with, well, unpleasant experiences, painful experiences. So, we have these pain, obvious physical and mental pain. We have this pain of insecurity, vulnerability, uh, fearfulness of unexpected change. There's a third uh, experience that we all have that is referred to as dukkha and it's called sankhara dukkha. And there are two views, the macro view and the micro view. And the macro view is we're born, our parents and other primary caregivers doing the best they can take care of us. And so from conception onward, uh, you know, we're fed and later we're bathed. We're clothed, we're <clears throat> cuddled, we're cooed, we're taught, we're educated, we're, you know, played with, you know, and our parents doing everything they can to keep us happy. You know, bathed us, poop us, everything, try to keep us happy, because if we're not happy, they're not going to be happy, right? And so they do devote their life to us just to try to keep us, Okay? And we still cry, and we still complain, and we still make life difficult. Does anybody think that a baby doesn't suffer? Okay. And then parents hand us off to our siblings and their peers and get as much help as they can to kind of carry the little bundle of joy into the world. And then then they hand us off to the educational system the government system, the economic system, and we get on a track to follow in their footsteps to the happiness that they have looked for. And somewhere in our teenage years, we get the message, you're on your own. Now, you have to take care of yourself. Each one of us has gotten this message, we have to take care of ourselves. First, we have to take care of this body. Every day, we have to eat. And we know that soon, we're not going to be eating at home, so we're going to have to be doing our own food time, food gathering. And to do that, we need, you know, a job. We need to get some money to buy the food. And to get the job, we need an education. To get an education, you got to go to school for, you know, 12, 16, 20 years. There's some <laughs> There. You get a job. Great work all day. At the end of the day, after, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours, whatever your job is, it's time to go home and get dinner. So, on your way home, when everybody else is going home, uh, you stop off at the grocery store. When everyone else is stopping off at the grocery store, you get one of these little carts. You push it up and down the, the rows to pick out the food you want. You go to the checkout counter, stand in line, wait till you get checked out. While you're standing in line, you see all the books on, magazines on how to live your life happily, 12 steps for this. and everything that wise people do, wealthy people do, whatever. whatever. We're just trying to get dinner. So we get checked out, take all the bags of groceries, put them in the car, drive home through the traffic, eventually get home, whew, park the car, take all the groceries inside, set them on the counter, unpack them from the bag, put all the cans up here, put all the frozen <laughs> stuff in the freezer, put the refrigerator stuff in the refrigerator, take all the, uh, the wrappings, fold it up, put it in the recycling bin, fix yourself a drink, go in the living room, sit down. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's been a long day. Okay, half hour later, you get up, you go back into the kitchen, you pull out the cans, you pull out the frozen stuff, you, out stuff. you get out the fry can, you get, you know, and you spend, if you're good, you know, half hour, you're better, 45 minutes, and sometimes even more, preparing dinner for everyone in the house. Okay, so you spend an hour or so, and you make a pile of dirty dishes, and you set it down on the table for those in the household to come eat. 15 minutes is gone. Oh, they just to go back out of the kitchen. You go in the back into the kitchen, you scrape all the plates, all the compost in the compost, <laughs> put the plates in the dishwasher, put the pots and pans in here, do that, wash it up. Yeah. And push the button, start the dishwasher, and go in and collapse. And you gotta do this every day. Every day. That's just to get your feet, food. You gotta go to the toilet, you gotta do your grooming, you gotta get dressed, you gotta bathe, you gotta get your hair cut every few couple of weeks, you gotta do your toenails, fingernails, and other things all the time. Every day. And you gotta go to the doctor just to make sure you're doing it right. And you've gotta get your exercise or your heart's gonna get congested. And you gotta get the right vitamins and right. And, and you have to do it. you can't you can't hire somebody else to do this for you. You have to do it for yourself. And that's just to take care of the body. We have this mind that's even more demanding. Because if we don't keep the mind entertained, distracted, uh, indulging in pleasant experiences, it'll be just like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> 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 that's dukkha. And so we have to keep our mind entertained. Or we'll get depressed, we'll get bored, we'll get impatient, we'll get frustrated, we'll be angry, irritable. Dukkha. And we have to take care of this mind. And we have to get a body for one, two, three, four, five, seven decades. <laughs> Every day. And then what happens? Huh? Your friends go to the closet, pick out your best looking clothes, give <laughs> them some anonymous fellow in black who kind of puts them on fixes you up puts on the makeup you've never worn before in your life and everybody comes by to say goodbye looks just like him mm. okay. and then you go into a box in a hole in the ground or into the big furnace and that's it <laughs> I mean it's a good thing we can laugh because... <laughs> okay, so uh, some would say that was a bad investment. <laughs> but, but if that's all we were doing is just carrying this body as comfortably and as pleasantly as we can to the grave, we have wasted our life. There's something else we can do with our life, and that is to recognize what this life's all about to help ourselves be less tortured suffering and to help others. So there's something we can do. What we're doing here is waking up that this is the way it is and finding our own way to minimize suffering, to not cause others suffering, to help others with their suffering. This is a worthwhile thing to do in our life. But if we're just carrying the body and the mind to a grave, Not so good. Or I should say, that's exhausting. Just to have to do day in, day out for decades, it's just exhausting. It takes everything you've got. It becomes your whole life just taking care of this body and mind. That's the macro view. The micro view is we have six sense stores. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind. They are constantly stimulated 24-7 from birth onwards and you can't shut them off. <laughs> you cannot shut your body off from feeling sensations. You can do all the drugs you want, and you're still going to feel it. You can't shut your ears off from hearing. I mean, you can plug your ears, you can wear sound-canceling sound counseling headphones, and you'll still hear what you've heard before. Remember that music that was going through your head or anything? <laughs> you, can, you can close your eyes, and you'll still see things you've seen before or imagined. And your thoughts, the mind, incessant, isn't it? Who can stop their mind from thinking? Cannot. When you become sensitive to no, this is this is what's actually going on. It is absolutely oppressive. You cannot get away from it. You can't. This is called dukkha. Sankhara dukkha, the dukkha of existence. And you know, once you you know, it's hard it's hard to open it. this truth, this adult fact of life, as I call it, that the Buddha pointed to. Because, I mean, let's face it, what what can you do about it? What are you going to do? Once we get a glimpse of, geez, this this might be so, you know, then why? Keep on going? Yeah, well, that's, that's what we're faced with. You know, in my growing, growing up in New England, my parents were of the generation where my mom would say, "If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all." And even though we lived, I, I got to say, in a very dysfunctional uh, uh, family uh, with an alcoholic and a drug addict, a prescription drug addict. Do you think there was anybody talking about dukkha? in our? No. Know, the power of denial was immense. Dukkha was stuffed in the closet. So far in the closet, life was great. I am so grateful for my teachers, my teachers, for bringing Dukkha out of the closet and saying, Take a look. You see anything like this in your life? And what can you do about it? Or what are you going to do about it? And it's not easy. It's not easy to open to this truth because we don't know what to do about it. <coughs> Practice, like we're doing here, is to investigate this truth because it's so well hidden beneath our conditioning. Our family and cultural, societal conditioning, educational conditioning, hides the truth of Dukkha from us. And so we have to hear about it and actually look hard. We have to pay close attention to our actual experience to see and confirm this truth of dukkha. And as you try to do that, you'll see that the mind tries every trick in the book to pretend that it's otherwise, to put put a different spin on it, to kind of hold out the option of something better. And so it's this constant investigation. That's why we stress really getting close to your experience. Being continuous, so that you're not just slipping away from the contact with, this is the way it is, recognizing the truth. Only when we begin to confirm for ourselves this truth, are we going to be able to do anything about it, or be moved or motivated to do anything about it. Are you convinced? There's there's, there's some dukkha, right? Hmm. So what are we going to do about it? Well, the Buddha, well, the Bodhisattva, in his investigation of dukkha, wanted to understand why. Why do we have this dukkha? What caused all this dukkha? And he realized, through his observation, understanding, that this dukkha is caused by craving, holding, wanting, yearning, being identified with, owning. Okay. Now, what does that See pointing to here. We get identified with things, we get identified with ourselves. We want things, we want experiences, we want material goods, we want relationships, we want security, we want safety, we want knowledge, we want everything. Of course, you know, if you want something and you can't get it, that's that's really that's unsatisfactory, right? But if you want something, and you do get it, how is that dukkha? Well, first, what do you have to do to get it? First, you've got to work for a few years to get the money or whatever it is to finally get it together to get it. If it's of any value at all, you have to insure it because it could be lost, stolen, destroyed somehow. If it's income, the government's going to take their share. Uh, if it's made out of metal, it's going to rust. If it's digital, it's going to be outdated in six months. If it's anything that's alive, it's going to get sick, get old, and die. (laughs) Right? And, And you have to take care of it. As soon as you get it, then you have to take care of it. And inevitably, it's going to come to its end. That's satisfying. Okay. So the Buddha said that we seek pleasant experiences. We'd much rather feel pleasant sensations in the body than unpleasant. We'd rather hear pleasant sounds than unpleasant. We'd rather taste pleasant tastes than... Otherwise we seek. We'll do... Well, just take a look. Most of our life is in the pursuit of pleasant physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, social pleasure. That's what we do with our time. We we want pleasure. And we, we try to Scheme, we scheme and strategize to get this pleasure in our life as much as possible. Because if we don't, then it will be unpleasant. And we don't like that. Right? <laughs> 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 Just talking about it. Yeah. But some of us get really smart. We think, I don't want pleasant experiences. I want spiritual awakening, and we go on retreat, or we come to meditation practice, or we take up a religion. And you know what it's like when you get into, you know, this kind of business. You keep looking for spiritual goodies, you know. So you get a little good sitting in the morning, and the rest of your day is ruined. Why? Because we want, we crave, we hold on to what we think is pleasant spiritual experience. So the Buddha said, we crave pleasant experience. We also, he said, crave continued existence. Now, that sounds pretty esoteric, but what's that mean? It means, did you have planning mind today? What is planning mind? Planning mind is imagining a future that's better than now, that somehow, if you could just get, then you'd be happy to whether it's a holiday, or a better job, or a newer house, or a nicer car, or a spiritual experience, you know, and if you could just get it. So we're imagining paradise elsewhere, somewhere in the future. And all the time that we're spending to get it, we're making plans for additional futures. If we had to live out all the futures that we have planned for ourselves, we would would have to spend hundreds of lifetimes to do that during which we would be making plans for additional hundreds of lifetimes, (laughs) which is what we've been doing for hundreds of lifetimes. This is called samsara. Looking for happiness in experiences that can't provide it. And while we're pursuing and getting and consuming what we thought last week was going to be satisfying this week, we're making plans for next week. And that's been going on for eons lifetimes, if you understand it that way. Lifetimes. So, when are we going to stop? When are we going to ever reach the end of this craving for more future experience? The Buddha said we also crave the end of existence. Now, this isn't anything to... Dramatic, it just means that we just as soon have unpleasant experiences end now. We'd like to get that over with. Anything that's going to be unpleasant, we'd like to get that over with now. We'd like that to end. And if it's me that is this unpleasant having this unpleasant experience, we want it to end. So we crave the end of these experiences, unpleasant experiences. Interesting. Recent studies of we in the West has revealed that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. <laughs> and what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. Recent studies of lottery winners and those who experience catastrophic illness or calamity has revealed that one year after winning the lottery, the baseline happiness is the same as the day before. And same with those who who uh, are given a diagnosis, a catastrophic illness or a calamity. One year later, depending on progress or progression or whatever, no significant change in the outlook on life, their happiness, optimism or pessimism. No significant change. What these two sets of Uh, research results points to is we really don't know what will make us happy and our idea of happiness is independent of what is really happening. So happiness is not dependent on external conditions but rather it's dependent upon our internal mind. Hmm. Okay, So we have the First Noble Truth is to be investigated, really looked for, looked at in order to reveal it the second noble truth, craving, is to be abandoned. So, if the Buddha had just realized the two noble truths, there's dukkha, caused by craving, good luck. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be in a cattle or fish, wouldn't we? we'd be in trouble. What would we do? But luckily, he found two more. And there's the third noble truth and the fourth. So the third noble truth says that there is an end to the suffering by the end of craving. Now, a lot of times when you hear talk about the third noble truth, it's a very esoteric, high, lofty, remote, you you know, talk about enlightenment, nirvana, freedom, liberation, something that's like, what's that got to do with my knee pain? So I want to point to the experiences we've had today that really reflect the truth of the Third Noble Truth, that there is the end of craving resulting in the end of suffering available to us here and now. So I'm going to call these Dukkha-free zones. Okay. So one way that we experience a Dukkha-free zone is when we notice that, you know, we're kind of we're kind of going along on a daydream, and then we kind of wake up to a daydream, and we go, "What? What? what am I wasting my time with this?" for? I, I mentioned that you know after I got out of college, I did my first retreat. Having done a lot of math, my mind wandered off into mathematical calculation, and I'd be like, oh, "Let's see, this building is uh, you know, 30 40 feet long, 20 feet wide. You know, how many cubic feet is that?" And, and I go, do I need to do this now? I don't know. I don't need to do that. But it reveals that if we don't look carefully at what we're doing in our well, let's call it our discretionary spaced out time, we will continue the habits that we've learned, you know, through school and otherwise. Until we look, we don't know that's what we're doing. So even now, today, you probably have noticed. How begun to notice how often you make plans that never going to be put into effect, or you find yourself rehearsing for conversations you're never going to have, or explaining things that nobody's ever going to listen to. <laughs> right? And these are habits of mind that take up all of our disk space. Right? And so when we when we see that this is going on, we realize we don't we don't need to be doing this. And yet we can't stop doing it until we recognize it and understand that just being aware of it gradually weakens the power of that habit. And so as we learn to let go, recognize and let go, it's not like we're pushing it away. We don't have don't have aversion to it, we just go, I don't need to do this, and it stops. That's a moment. It, right then, there's a moment of dukkha-free, a dukkha-free zone, when you let go before you pick something else up, you should notice that, that feeling of like, ah, relief. The second way that we see the end of dukkha is when, (coughs) you know, we have these torments that arise in the mind, you know, whether it's anxiety or fear or depression or sloth sloth and torpor or restlessness or whatever. when we're identified with it, I'm tired, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I'm depressed, we're suffering. As soon as we can step out of that and have a little bit of objective view of it, we see, oh, this anxiety has arisen in the mind. And immediately that gives us a a sense of relief because it's not that I'm anxious, but there's an awareness that anxiety has arisen. And just that much of stepping out of being identified with these states of mind is a relief, a mini zone. And the more we do that, the more, the weaker that habit becomes, the quicker we catch it. We don't have to wallow for you know hours in some rant or some anger or something. We catch it quickly. So we suffer much, much less. There's a third way that we... Um, maybe not yet on this retreat, because it takes a while, but to develop what are called the seven factors of awakening. There are three energizing factors, there's three tranquilizing factors, all brought into being and matured through mindfulness, which we're doing. And when these seven factors come into balance, they're matured balance, Their investigation, energy, and joy balance with tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, when they come into balance, the mind is very equanimous. Now, what does equanimity mean? Equanimity means that the mind is able to be present, be mindfully aware of of anything, everything, and not react. It's not that the mind is passive, it's not that the mind is disconnected or dissociated, the mind is fully engaged, but we've seen the unskillfulness of the reactive mind. We're not going to indulge in it, nor are we going to push it away. We're going to see, this is the way it is, and we're able to stop entangling ourselves in it. This is a form of dukkha-free experience. In fact, it's the best we get in practicing vipassana, up until uh, deep insight, profound insight. It's just being able to live in the world with the full range of experiences that we have and not be jerked around, not be jerked into attachment, desire, indulgence, excitement, and not to be kind of dumped into fear, depression, anxiety, and you know despair. But see, oh, this is the way... It is. No matter what it is, no matter how scary it might have been or how exciting it might have been, we don't get pulled off of our center. We're able to maintain a balanced relationship with everything. From that place of um, equanimity, we begin to see not just the moment's experience, but we begin to see the universal characteristics of all experience. And this is through insight practice. Um, It's very weak now, we've only been here a few days, but nevertheless, you know the direction that we're going, is we begin to see... This experience arises due to causes and conditions outside of our control, and we can learn to be with it, and not take, I mean, own it as far as, if I'm like psychologically this is my experience, but not own it like I made it happen and I can make it stop happening. And once we see that, oh, this, this experience is not me, it's not mine, it's not, it's not really who I am, it comes due to causes and conditions, much like a rainbow. You know a rainbow in the sky? If you look at it, it looks like there's really something there. But it's, it's just a colorful appearance due to very specific causes and conditions. Moisture, sunlight being viewed at a certain angle with the eyes and eyes. <coughs> and then, and if those conditions are present, a rainbow appears. But there's no such thing as a rainbow as far as there's no substance to it. You can't package it, you can't sell it, you can't send it to anybody. It's just an appearance due to conditions. Everything that we experience is an appearance due to conditions. It has no more substance, no more reality, no more enduring entity than a rainbow, which has none. Wow. Once you see this characteristic of everything that you experience, what are you going to reach for to hold on to? What are you going to grasp? You know, it's like a rainbow. You don't try to catch a rainbow. You don't try to reach for a rainbow. I mean, when you're a kid, you might have, but... We don't. Right? Why? Because we know, well, there's there's really nothing there. It's to be enjoyed from a distance as an appearance, but that's it. But we can have that same understanding of all of life's experiences. It's to be lived. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be felt. It's to be known. But don't hold on to it, because... There's nothing of substance there. Oh, that's a great relief, not having to try to create and hold and, and manage stuff. That's the insight into the Anatta characteristic, the selfless, the essenceless nature of phenomena. The second thing that we see is, as much as things can be pleasant, they're not very satisfactory. Now, we can imagine all kinds of things that we would enjoy, and when we get them, they're, they may be pleasant, but the actual enjoyment and satisfaction from them is brief. They really don't fulfill the promise of enjoyment that we imagine. All you to do is get a new car and have somebody bump it, first day. And it's like, Okay, well, I was happy, now I'm, now I've got a burden, I gotta take it to the shop and get it fixed, (laughs) you know. And it's like, you know, we imagine it being, we can imagine it being perfectly satisfying, and yet the reality, if we pay attention, is not. So we begin to understand, hey, everything, all of our experiences have this characteristic of being painful, uh, vulnerable to change, uh, oppress it to hold on to and deal with the dukkha the dukkha characteristic and then if we really are seeing experience through the lens of dukkha through the understanding of its dukkha characteristic why would why would we reach for it and hold on to it and grasp it like it was going to be our security blanket it's not and we know that and so we don't we don't reach we don't hold if you don't crave you don't cling there's no dukkha Remember? Craving is the cause of dukkha. And so when we see and understand dukkha, then we don't grasp, we don't crave, we don't hold, we don't cling. And therefore, there's no result in dukkha. The third thing we see through Vipassana insight is how fleeting everything is. How impermanent. Things come together for a split second. And if you're there and you're you, you see it, it's gone. Whether it's a, a pleasant feeling, an unpleasant feeling, a thought, a memory, a plan, whatever. It's just, yeah, we can keep recurring. We can keep dredging it up again and again and again. But it doesn't have any legs. It just doesn't last. Well, at some point, we stop trying to hold on to things that just slip out of our grip. As soon as we get them in our mind, as soon as we grab a hold of it, it's, pssst, disappears when we really understand this deeply, not just because we hear it and we think about it, but that we are experiencing it moment to moment, the mind is not going to reach and hold on to anything. And so through the power of understanding these three characteristics, yes, dukkha is suffering. Experiencing dukkha is suffering. Understanding dukkha is liberating. Understanding impermanence is liberation. Understanding the selfless, essenceless nature of the phenomenon. Is liberating. And, furthermore, it is from one of these insights, either into impermanence, uh, unsatisfactoriness, or the essencelessness of phenomena, it is through one of these insights that the mind accesses the unconditioned. The unconditioned is nibbana. It is the end of suffering. There is no suffering. It's not like you say in nirvana, we say in nirvana because we don't know how to talk about it. But the nirvana is ineffable. No size, shape, colour, no texture, no location, nothing except its characteristic is peace. Absolute pervading peace. No dukkha, no suffering. The Buddha said of this third noble truth the end of suffering. He said, it is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful, it is sublime, it is beyond mere reasoning. It is subtle, but it is intelligible to the wise, meaning those who pay attention, those who understand, will see it. And we use words like peace, contentment, and the sublime to point to this truth. It is to be realized by each one of us. It can't be offered. It can't be given. It can't be sold. You can't read it in a book. You can read it you want in a book, but that's not the realization of it. Each one of us has to see for himself, realize for himself this end of suffering, this unconditioned reality. It's a reality that is available to us if we practice. The fourth noble truth is the path to be developed. To realize the end of suffering. And this is what we've been doing here. We've been practicing the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path, which is three trainings. The first training is sila, or living according to the precepts of non-harming, like we do here. And when we do that, we uh, we purify our speech and our behavior of the transgressive torments that cause others' suffering. We don't say and do things that cause us suffering to others. That gives us the opportunity to enjoy the happiness of harmony, living with integrity within ourselves, in harmony with ourselves, but also in harmony with each other. This this alone would be a great relief from suffering. You know, when you look at the news from any day, the front page of the news, or any news you know aggregator that you want to look at. It is a catalogue of people not keeping the precepts. Every day. And that's what it it is. It's just a catalogue of suffering because people can't keep the precepts. Or won't. And so we know there's a lot of suffering. And to the extent that we make a commitment to practice sila, we'll see our own life reduce suffering. But... Even if we're careful in how we speak and act, the mind can still be quite obsessed. And so the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path is mindfulness, for the development of samadhi. spoke about last night. When we develop the continuity of mindfulness and establish this seclusion of mind, called samadhi, then the mind is not obsessed. The mind is not obsessed with fear and greed and attachment and anxiety and depression. It sees, it sees, and this identifies from those states of mind. This purifies the mind of the obsessive torments, And we get to enjoy the happiness of seclusion or tranquility, calmness. The third training of the Full Path is training wisdom, or Vipassana, insight. And when we practice insight, and we see these three characteristics over and over again quite continuously when they become the default lens through which we see the world then we purify our understanding of latent torments the tendency to react or respond with some anger aversion, attachment confusion, delusion we uproot uproot the the tendency to do that and that is the doorway to the unconditioned that's the doorway to realizing the end of suffering. So this, this whole path, this three training, are to be developed by each one of us, which is exactly what we're doing here today, this week, practicing sila, developing samadhi, gathering some capacity to gain insight. This is the Buddha's articulation of. Well, the adult facts of life. This is the way it is. And we can confirm it for ourselves if we practice. And why did Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? He says, because it is beneficial. And because it belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. And it leads to disenchantment. And it leads to dispassion. And it leads to cessation. And it leads to peace. It leads to the direct knowledge and enlightenment of Nibbāna. What more could we do today for our own well-being than what we've done? Really. And as the Buddha said, the purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dharma is not for gaining merit, it's not for doing good deeds, it's not for the ecstasy and rapture, it's not for concentration or samadhi, but it is for the sure heart's release This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.